We are um, in the midst of our series that's striving to kind of break out the vision of our church. And the reason that there are cameras sitting around is not because I'm vain and just like to think of myself on camera. In fact, I wish that somebody else could stand here and be on camera. It's not really my thing. But what we want to do as we do this is provide for uh, membership classes and things of that nature so that as we move forward and people come to be a part of our church, we can help them understand and gain the vision that we are striving to build in ourselves as we form this new church. And so last week we started with the gospel because of the gospel we are, and it gave us a, a foundation for where we're really going to move over the next few weeks Today we're going to deal with worship. The, the, the second phrase of our vision statement is, is that we worship uh, and lead others to worship the one true God. And as you think about worship, it would be easy to define it as you've always been thought, as you've always thought of it, or as you've always just looked at it. You know, and, and the problem with that is, is that in many cases. Today, people define worship as what we just did, and that's as far as their understanding of worship goes. Well, we sang some songs together, and so we worshiped, and that's worship, right? And now it's time to sit and listen to you preach, and that's something separate and different. And then we're going to get up and leave this building, and we're going to go into our homes or into our neighborhoods, and we don't need to worship anymore. We'll wait till next Sunday to get together and worship. And you think, oh, I don't really think that. Well, our vo- our vocabulary really defies it. it. It shows really what we think. I mean, we call this a worship gathering. We talk about going to worship. The reality is at some level, the vast majority of us, especially in Christian culture, um, would define it this way. Others who define worship, John MacArthur defines worship as all that we are responding appropriately to all that he is. And from the Baker's Evangelical Dictionary Dictionary of Biblical Theology, one may consult Webster's Dictionary for the precise meaning of worship, adore, idolize, esteem, worthy, reverence, homage, etc. Yet truly defining worship proves more difficult because it's both an attitude and an act. We can turn to the words of Scripture. The Scripture, as, as you look in the words, at the words that we now translate as worship, you can go to the original meaning and, and you can strive to gain an understanding of worship from what those words mean. And, and every word used to, uh, that's now translated as Scripture speaks of us placing our body in some position or using our body in some act of service to demonstrate honor to some object of of adoration or some object that we esteem worthy to receive that honor. We can turn to Scripture like Romans 12.1 and Hebrews 13.15-16 that refers to worship not only as, as some attitude but some action of doing things. The truth is, is that there's really no way that I'm going to be able to change your mind today about what worship is. I'm not going to be able to give you a full explanation and doctrine or theology of worship. It's not going to happen in the time we have. But over the next two weeks, what I hope we'll build is an understanding of what the attitude looks like and what that action looks like. Now, see, I think 
I think that the attitude of worship is what we're really going to focus on today. I think the attitude of worship really begins with an understanding of where the gospel begins. The gospel exists because worship doesn't. Think about that for just a second. If we were all the God worshipers that we were intended to be and created, if we were all living as we were designed to live, there would really be no need for the gospel. The gospel is given because worship isn't being properly given. Don't get me wrong. Our world has plenty of worship. We have an overabundance of worship. It's just not the good God-centered, God-glorifying, God-honoring kind of worship. There's still plenty of people in the world that bow to idols, like real physical idols. I know that's shocking to us. We've moved beyond that. You know, we're more civilized than that. We, we recognize that there's no life in a statue. But my first trip to China, I was shocked to see in a Buddhist temple that I was able to get into and and, and watch and perceive what was going on, this man lighting his his, uh, incense, placing it in, I don't know what you would call it, this incense holder. He steps back and begins to bow and pray to this golden statue. I was shocked. I thought... Come on, that just happened in the Bible. No, it really still happens today. And you know what was struck me? As I watched that happen, I was amazed to see that after he finished praying, he turns and his family is off to the side and he gets his son and he brings his son over and he begins to teach his son how to worship this idol. My only assumption is is that it's going to continue to happen. You know, we've moved beyond that, of course. I mean, we're better than that. We're smarter than that. We don't worship idols here, right? I wonder what it would look like to the people in the Bible if they walked into an arena when a sporting event was going on. People are cheering. They're painted in their colors of their team. I I know a guy that knows more about football than I... I I mean, this guy knows everything about football. You can ask him any stat question you want for years back. For I mean, I don't know how he has and holds all of this information, but he does it. I used to work with him. He spends more time studying what it is to be a fan of football than he does anything else. And it would be nice if I could say that that's just what happens with non-Christians. But the truth is there's people sitting in the room. There's people that are going to hear this and they're going to realize and recognize they know more about their favorite team. They know more about basketball or football, baseball, or God forbid soccer than they do about the Bible. Man, they love it so much, they just give themselves to it. You know, we worship our television stars, movie stars, music stars. We even have a show that we call American Idol. 
You know, I mean, we're, we're just that brazen. We're just that sure of ourselves. Oh, why else, if, if we don't worship these people, why else would it be that gossip shows and gossip magazines are so popular? If, if we didn't worship these people, if we didn't care about them in some way, if they didn't mean something to us, People Magazine wouldn't be. But see, People Magazine exists because it's the Bible of these people who worship these stars. And then we gather in theaters and at concerts and in living rooms to worship our, our favorite actors, our favorite singers. The truth is we even worship less tangible things. Tim Keller wrote a book recently. It's called Counterfeit Gods. And in it he details how America has these gods of money, sex, and power. And how many of us give our lives to pursuing them as if they are going to in some way provide for us the satisfaction or the happiness or the, or the joy that we so long for. See, even in America, we've got a problem. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't think it's wrong to enjoy sports. I, I don't think it's wrong to sit down and, and watch a movie or to, or to buy albums for, for music you enjoy. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having money, with enjoying sex in its right context, or even having authority or power. I think what happens that makes it wrong is that we elevate these things to a place of preeminence in our life. We, we elevate these things that are really morally neutral to become something that's ultimate to us, that we can't exist without, that we don't think we'll be happy without, that we, don't, we think we have to have them. We think that they are in some way going to provide us something that we so desperately long for. And so at the cost of everything else, we begin, we begin pursuing them. See, the list I've given you is really a short one. And the reality is, reality is that maybe I've not even hit on the thing that you worship. But the truth is, is that it's just like John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly lifting things up. This list goes on and on and on. But diversity is not a good thing. It isn't like your portfolio. Diversity in this subject is wrong. And I think as we read through Romans today and we, we look at what God says happens as a result of misplaced, misapplied worship, we're going to see that directing it in too many different directions is really the source of our problems and the major issue that the gospel really sets right. If you have a Bible, the verses will be on your screen. For those of you that were hoping for the little handouts today, I'll just let you know they are prepared, and they are at home in my computer. My printer wouldn't work this morning for whatever reason. It's uh, caused me some grief, but anyway, I'm not worshiping those, and so we're going to continue on. We'll be able to do church without them. But the verses are on the screen, or if you've got your Bible, you're welcome to, to follow along. Romans chapter 1. Verses 16 through 25. <clears throat> for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power 
of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now just just notice here, he is talking about what the gospel is about doing, what the gospel is able to do because it's powered by God. It's the actual power of God for bringing salvation, for bringing life through faith. He goes on, and for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un or against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here's why the gospel exists. Here's why it had to be. Because God's wrath, His justified wrath, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, they these people that Paul's talking about. And just so we have an understanding, a clear understanding, who's he talking about? You go back to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from, the he- from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's talking about mankind. He's talking about all of us. This, this applies as much to you and me today as it does to the people that were, that, that were living in the times of Genesis. This is as real for us as it was for them. He's talking about the the race of man. He's not talking about any individual person or any individual group of people. He's talking about all of us. God has made himself plain to all of us, not just a certain people. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been shown since the creation to all people. So who's without excuse? All of us. And what does it look like? To deny the truth or to suppress the truth? But although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. Now I don't know if I'm going to get back to this. I want to say it now so that you see it. God is going to be praised regardless of who who praises Him or what we do to praise Him. He is either going to be praised because of His justice in your life or He is going to be praised because of His grace in your life. One or the other, God is going to be honored. We cannot take this from God. And that's why Paul, I think, adds this at the end and says, who is blessed forever, regardless God will be praised and people will come to a place where they sing His praises. 
But here we go. I mean, here, here we have an explanation of the gospel, why it exists. Because mankind decided to worship something other than God. And I think the clear statement is, and something that we can draw from this very easily, is that everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. There, there's no exceptions given in this passage. It, this speaks of all people. There, there's, not a, there's not a place where it specifically says everybody worships all people, but it certainly makes that point. Everybody is worshiping something other than God. The expression of worship might be different. The object of worship will vary from person to person. We may not even call it worship. We may come up with a great name like entertainment. We may think of it just as a vocation. Whether it's admitted or not, we all worship something. And not everyone likes this view. As I prepared for this message, I came across this blog. It happened to be a blog for an atheist. He doesn't believe in God at all. And he's a little bit bothered by the idea that somebody says he's worshiping something just because he's devoted to his family or his job or, or that he cares about something. He's really bothered by that. And as he talked about why he was bothered by it, it, was, it, it became clear that he didn't like the way that Christians were deciding to define worship. He didn't like how we were determining worship to be something more than what Webster's calls it. He didn't like that it was more than just this, this time or, or place that you go to to offer up some thought, uh, some good thought or some act of honor. You know, he, he, he couldn't stand that maybe there was something more to worship than what Webster said, but he's trapped. He really has no opportunity to know anything different. He's not going to understand the attitude of worship because he doesn't have the spirit that enables him to worship. And Harold Best, I really appreciate him. I've become to appreciate him over the last couple of years. He's the dean of, of the conservatory, or used to be the dean of the conservatory of music at Wheaton College. He studied and written extensively on worship. He's written a book, and in fact, some people would say this is the book to read on worship. And he defines worship. He, he makes a distinction between the Christian God and all the other little g-gods, and that's why I appreciate this definition. He says, worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. It's pretty profound. Think about it. All that I am, all that I ever will do, all that I ever will become in light of a chosen or choosing God. According to Best, we're either going to choose our gods or we're going we're to give ourselves to the pursuit of a God that we really becomes dependent upon us for its existence. I mean, really, if we don't idolize money, then, I, I, then, then money ceases to be a God to us, right? So it, it depends on me. If I don't idolize sports then it ceases to become a God. Those idols depend on us, and so we're either going to depend on, pursue, and, and, and give ourselves to a God that we choose, that we raise up, and that we give power to, 
which then turns and enslaves us. Or we're going to give ourselves to the pursuit of a God who intrinsically has authority and power and who's been making those things known since the creation of the world. The reality is, is that as a result of the gospel, because of the gospel, we can worship God. We have a choice that this poor atheist doesn't. He's bound and, and stuck in his nature. He's so blinded and in the darkness that he has no idea. Unless somebody steps in and says, you know what? There is another way. I don't know about you. I want my worship to be to a God who doesn't depend on me. This is the God I want to worship. Psalm 148, 5 and 6. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. You see, that's the kind of God I want to worship. I want to, I want to worship a God who doesn't change with every shifting shadow, who doesn't, who doesn't change with my opinions or my feelings or my emotions. I want to worship a God who is steadfast and whose power rules, whose power is complete in, and, and whose, whose rule is, is over all things. I want to worship a God who is just at every turn and gracious always. You see, I want to worship a God who holds people accountable for their sin and somehow still makes a way that He can offer their forgiveness for sin. You see, we get so angry and we get so upset with God today. We get so frustrated with this, this idea that God would condemn people. Oh, I wouldn't worship a God that's angry. And we separate the God from the Old Testament and the God from the New Testament. And we believe that, that somehow the God from the Old Testament was just this angry God and suddenly He figured things out and became loving in the New Testament. Or maybe somehow He's a different God altogether. I, I don't want to worship the God that Americans lift up as God. And the reason I don't want to worship Him is because He's weak and He's powerless. And He exists for our pleasure. See, this God, the, the, the God that they say, oh, He's just a loving God, He would never do that. He's not the holy, righteous God that the Scriptures reveal. I, I want to worship a God who is holy and righteous and just who holds people accountable and who brings condemnation where condemnation is deserved. And don't get me wrong, that means all of us. I don't think I'm standing in a place that's deserving any more than anyone else. But that God has also shown Himself to be gracious and merciful, long-suffering, you see, that same God that holds people to, to righteousness and holds the standard of perfection, that same God provided the way 
That's the God that I want to worship. That's the God I believe the Bible calls us to worship. That's the God who's been revealing Himself since the beginning of creation. See, I think that's the God that the Bible just blindly portrays without any without any prohibition, without any holding back at all. This is the God that we're called to worship. But it's not the God we all worship. You see, the Bible doesn't make any it doesn't make any qualms about it. It doesn't, it doesn't hold this up for debate. There really is only one right object of our worship. There's only one that's worthy of our worship. It's not a secret. It's not something that's held back. It's not something that, that, that God is playing close to the chest and He just doesn't want us to know about. But this God, He's been showing Himself and, and He's been revealing Himself. He's proven that He alone is worthy of this worship. And everything else falls short. Everything else falls short. Our passage, I mean, it it, it portrays that. It shows us. He is truth. and Everything else is a lie. He is powerful. He is creator. Everything else is creation. It's less than. You know, as as I have studied in Romans, and and I, let let me preface this as I'm about to say this. My view of Romans is, I, I believe, along with probably most everyone in here believes, that this is probably the, one of the greatest explanations of the gospel. And if you're going to understand the salvation, justification by faith, and the work of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are at some point going to have to come to the book of, of Romans. I, I think you're going to have to. But what I've begun to recognize over the last year or two years, actually, is that this book isn't just about seeing us saved into eternal life. But just as it starts with worship, this thread of restoring worship, the the, the work that the gospel does to restore worship is all the way through it. There's only one right object of worship. Every other object is wrong. There's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it in the Bible. Certainly, there's plenty in our churches. I mean, consider. Now, I think we're on the, on the other side of this today. But, but the last two decades have marked the church with what's been called worship wars. First, it demonstrates what our limited view of worship is but it also demonstrates that we really believe that worship in some form exists for us. People would get upset. They'd leave their churches. They would would walk away because they weren't playing the right kind of music. We can only worship with a piano and an organ. I wonder how they worshiped before the piano and the organ. And I wonder, I wonder what God's thinking as this is going on and people are singing songs like, I surrender all. I surrender all. 
all to you, my blessed Savior. I won't sing anymore. I surrender all. Well, everything except this. The music has to be to my liking. It's got to speak to me. It's got to make me feel good. It's got to pump me up. It's got to make me feel better. Honestly. Honestly. I don't know if you listen to the words of the songs that we sang this morning. I don't, I don't know if you stopped and, and really considered the words that you're speaking about and, 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 and that you're saying as we sing together corporately. God became a man. He was born of a virgin. Hello? It doesn't happen without somebody acting. It doesn't happen without something inter, interjecting itself into the midst of the situation. Come on, really? We're, we're going to get caught up over a style of music when, when truths like that exist? He, he came and He died and He rose again and He went and prepared a place. And He's coming back again to get us and take us home. Worship wars. It's not worship wars. It's selfish wars. Well, maybe you never, maybe you never got caught up with that. But a lot of us get caught up with our doctrinal positions. I mean, how is it that so many denominations exist? And I'm not an anti-denominational person. I, I mean, I'm all for denominations existing for, for, for networking and for uh, uh, the assistance of the work of bringing the gospel. But in many cases, the church, the churches couldn't come to a place of agreement and they would split over their doctrinal views. How, how do you think that represents God? Whenever His people are so stuck in their own view that they are suddenly separating themselves from one another because we don't agree. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, there's some things, you know, there, there's some gross that need to be removed. I mean, nobody likes a tumor, right? I mean, let's get rid of the tumor. There's things that the Reformation needed to happen. It, it needed to happen. And there's some, some denominations that would, would, would walk away from the essentials of the faith and we're not going to partner with them. But we are certainly not going to point a finger or call our brothers and sisters in Christ something other than what they are just because they disagree with us on some secondary or tertiary issue. See, our doctrine... Uh, our, our, especially those, you know, obviously there's the essentials that we have to stick to. But our doctrine isn't what makes us more Christian than somebody else. But the truth is, is not only do we, do we in some way worship this doctrine and hold it up, we believe that that's the way we've got to make every other believer out there. I, I've even said it as we've, as I've talked with people about being involved in this mission work in Africa. I don't mind going and assisting a Southern Baptist missionary to see a Southern Baptist church plan. And we're not a Southern Baptist church. But one of the greatest reasons that I feel so strongly about being able to partner with, with the missionary that's there 
is because he's not about first and foremost seeing a Southern Baptist church plan. He's, he's about seeing a people of God raised up who love and respond well to Jesus. That's what he wants. In practice, they may become a Southern Baptist church, but first and foremost, they will be a Jesus-loving people. That's what it's about. See, what happens is, is we take these things, we, we take these things and, and we misapply our worship. And that's what Romans is all about. About the gospel coming in and providing life. And, and, and bringing justification, righteousness to people who were sinners. But then restoring the true worship to God's people. See, what we've done is we've taken these things, these, these things that are created, that depend on us, and we've raised them to a place of preeminence. And we need to call them what they are. We may be worshiping them, but we are not worshiping gods. We are worshiping idols. Raising good things to be ultimate things is idolatry. And there is nothing that deserves to be in this place other than God. So I love that Romans starts and tells us this story. All of our problems center on this one idea. All of our problems result from this one thing. We have become idol worshipers. And the gospel, through the gospel, God is able to turn us around and open our eyes and bring our attention back to Him. You see, what we find in this, in this opening passage of Romans is that the gospel, or I'm, not, I'm sorry, not the gospel, but worship is designed into us. You weren't just created to worship. You weren't just created for worship. You were created a worshiper. Think about it. There's a distinction. There's a difference. It may seem subtle, but you are going to worship not because it's a duty or a task. You are going to offer your worship to something because that's the way you were designed. And our greatest problem is that we no longer worship the God who deserves it, but we worship idols that we've created for ourselves. Now, worship's only part of the equation. You see, in our worship of God, it, it, it was designed to be that God would be our God and we would be His people. We were designed for a worship relationship with God. That's what He created us to be. He, he created that with, within us. And as soon as Adam and Eve took the bite of that apple and, 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 and fell to that temptation and began to go their own way, they became their own gods and, and fell to a lie. And ever since then, we've all been buying into this lie that in some way we can find satisfaction, we can find our place, we can find our purpose, we can find that thing that we exist for in something other than God. So worship, the attitude of worship is, is, is among all of us because it's part of us. It's designed in us. And worship's only part of the equation. Our worship is to be extended to God, and He is to be our God. It's, it's through our relationship with Him that this, this emptiness is filled, that, that the purpose is found, that, that the existence makes sense, that, that we find satisfaction, that we find joy, that we, that we no longer have to chase after the things of the world that we think in some way, if I just have enough money in my bank account, I'll be happy. 
if I just get this job, I'll be happy. If, if I have two kids, a wife, and a car in the garage, then the dream is made. I'll be set. But here's what we all find out. We get to the other side of that and find out that there's still something missing. So we chase after something else. And when we get that, we have to chase after something else. You see, worship is our responsibility. Worship is our part. Worship is what we're supposed to do. God doesn't worship us. He's not supposed to look at us and exalt us and, and put, him, put, our, put us above Himself. But God certainly serves His people. God certainly provides for His people. God certainly protects His people. God certainly exists and, 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 and in relationship with His people gives them the satisfaction, the joy, the peace that, that we were always intended to have. And as the gospel comes in and, and, and Paul talks about this, this salvation that happens, he puts it in terms of the worship of God falling apart. In fact, it was John Gill that turned me on to this as he interprets or comments on Romans 3.23 where he says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. You know, all my life I had thought that it's because I didn't live, live up to his expectations. I just wasn't what he intended, to, intended me to be. And in some way, that's right. But John Gill notes that it's possible or that it's likely that this also is meaning that we are no longer glorifying God. And so really, our greatest problem, our greatest issue is that we no longer worship the God we've been created to worship. And so from that, every sin emanates. See, we don't just have sin problems. We have worship problems. We don't just struggle with things like alcoholism or pornography or, or uh, obesity. We, we don't just struggle with these things in life because we decide to do something wrong. We struggle with them because we decide to worship something wrong. Oh, oh. Beyond health issues and people's bodies not really working right, what do you think the cause of obesity is? Well, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. And I can say this because I'm overweight. I can get away with this. It's because we like food. When my mind is, is wandering and when, my, when, when, when I feel down or you know what I look to? In many cases, I look to food. Now, there's things I'm changing about my, my diet, and there's things I've, I've changed about my, myself, but there's a click in my head. Somebody hurts my feelings, I want to stick a Twinkie in my mouth. <laughs> I don't know how that works. sure makes me feel better for a minute. I don't, I don't know what the deal is there. But it's true. And I, I, I look to this, to, to, to this food as if in some way it's going to fix my problems. As if in some way the, the, momentary, the, 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 the momentary enjoyment or the taste is going to make, make all things better. Really, I'm going to end up with a sugar high that's going to leave me crashing later. Still feeling empty. How about alcoholism? I know a guy that is an alcoholic and, and he told me, 
Well, I, I drank a lot, but I wasn't an alcoholic. I mean, he was. He, he told me he was drinking like 36 beers a day or something crazy like that. It was nuts how many 30 packs of beer he was going through in a week. It's like, I'm not an alcoholic. Okay, well, maybe you don't want to call yourself an alcoholic, but certainly you're worship, worshiping something that leads you to this place that you consume all of this beer that you can then forget all of your problems and feel numb to all the issues around the world. I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I've not heard him talk enough about what led him to drink. Some people drink to forget. Some people drink because they want to celebrate. They think in some way that alcohol is going to make them more able to cope. It's going to satisfy some issue inside of them. How about pornography? Why is pornography a growing problem in our culture? It's not just a man problem. It's a man and woman problem. It's not just an adult problem. It's a teen problem. It, we're all dealing with it. it. It's everywhere. And why is it such a problem? Because we worship something other than the Creator. And every time we worship something other than the Creator, it leads us to act in sinful ways. We all worship. It may be called something different. The objects of worship might be different. The truth is everyone worships. And the results of worship not directed at God is sin and depravity. If you don't believe me, listen to the words of Scripture, Romans 1. They thought they were becoming wise and they became fools. Their thinking was futile. I, that doesn't put a positive spin on it. That doesn't make it sound good to me. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. I mean, impurity doesn't sound nice. To dishonoring their bodies. You know, the, the truth is that we could finish reading this, and, and let me just hit some of the highlights for you. Women gave up natural relations with women. So did men. And so they started getting with one another instead of the opposite sex. They, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, He gave them up to a debased mind. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. Oh, they're disobedient to their parents. Threw that in for the mothers. I know you would appreciate that. And though they knew God, I, 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 don't, I, I was going to say I love this verse, and I, I do, but I, I really appreciate it. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. A, a, a misapplied worship, a misdirected worship always leads to sin. We don't just have sin problems, we have worship problems. And if you want to overcome sin in your life, pick the sin and find the root of worship behind it. How do I know? Seth, how, how, what, what do I look for? What do I ask for? What do you feel like you have to have? What, what, what do you spend the most money on? How do you spend your time? What, what's, the, what's the largest way that you spend your time? 
all the, all the abilities, everything that God's given you and made you able to do, what do you use them to do? How do you use your time, treasure your talents? That's the question. What are you afraid most of losing? I mean, if you, if you lost it, you just thought your life would end. Questions like that. Why questions? Why do I do this? Why, why, do I, why, why do I continue to eat when I know it's not right for me? Why do I deal with that underlying issue? Why does that issue affect me? And continue digging until I get to the root and find that the reality is I'm worshiping something other than God. You see, we have worship problems. But the beauty of the book of Romans is, is that we're not left with these worship problems. It's not the end of the road. It's, it's not, okay, well, I have these worship problems. There's no, there's no hope. There's no, no, no chance for me. See, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, because He came here, He put on flesh, dwelt among us, and lived among us, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death in our place for our sins, rose again to provide eternal life, and then ascended to the Father and promised that He would come back and get us. Because of that, because of what He's done and the fact that He's made it clear, we can worship God. Oh, we can worship the God we were always intended to worship. See, we can worship God as a result of the gospel. I mean, if, if you follow the book of Romans and you just flip through the pages and, and consider the words, and Paul starts in this place where chapter 1, it kind of lay, lays out what went wrong. It lays out all the problems. Romans 3 gets really, really in your face about it. I mean, it says things like no one is righteous. No one seeks God. Um, there's death that just kind of extends out of us. It says their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. That's not painting a very pretty picture of people. Now, that's where we were. But the tone changes about verse 21 when it says, but now the righteousness of God is being revealed apart from the law through, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We all fall short of glorifying the one God that deserves to be glorified. We all fall short of the design that He placed in us. We do not worship Him first. And the truth is, if you believe all that Romans chapter 3 says, we don't even look to worship Him. We don't seek after Him to worship Him. We don't desire Him in any way. We're stuck in this place, but the righteousness of God is revealed and it's taught. And then it talks about in Romans chapter 4 that, that this is all comes through faith. Well, actually it starts in 3 and then proceeds into 4 and Paul just nails it down. We are justified. We are given God's righteousness by faith. And then it extends and continues to talk about the gospel that we're dead to sin, alive to God. It, it talks about what God does through the Spirit in, in, in this gospel and what He does in us as a result of the gospel and how He changes us 
in the gospel. And it continues on and it talks about the gospel and salvation is God's work. And then it comes to a place and all of the doctrine and all of the teaching and all of it is summed up and Paul turns and then says in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers. He's calling to them. And and the word appeal, I mean, get it? I appeal to you. Listen to me. This is it. Because of what God has done in the gospel. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to who? To God which is your spiritual worship. And and then he begins to lay out in all of the rest of Romans how we live in that worship and what that life of worship looks like and what it's about. You see, the Romans, it's not just about salvation of people, but it's about restoring right worship directed at the God who serves, the God who loves, the God who's just, and the God who's holy. As a result of what God's done through Jesus Christ, we can worship. We can worship God in response to the gospel. I was teaching a Bible study, and I was asking people for reasons that they worship God. And people were talking about the different attributes that He's revealed or different things He's done. And and this guy's comes, you know, he gives this comment and he says, you know, I feel the Spirit really just convicting me right now. We shouldn't worship God for what He does, but for who He is. And for a second, I, I was like, yeah, man, that's, that's right. He certainly is worthy of worship because of who He is. But there was something that was just off and I couldn't deal with it at that point. We were in the middle of a Bible study and I wasn't going wasn't gonna to debate with this guy and, and, and dig on it further. But it struck me as I left that when you read the Scriptures that bring praise to God, oftentimes they're bringing praise to God not strictly because of who He is, but because of what they've seen Him do. See, I don't think it's an either-or thing. I think it's a both-and thing. I mean, for example, you read Psalm 23. What's Psalm 23 say? Come on, it's 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 the most popular one. Give me the first verse at least. Psalm 23, there we go. Okay, see, that that wasn't hard. You guys surely know that. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me by. What's that saying? It's proclaiming the glory of God because of the work of God. Psalm 104, maybe you're not as familiar with that one as Psalm 23. But if you read Psalm 104, you know what you're going to find? God is being praised and glorified because He is the maker and the sustainer of the earth. He's being praised not because just because of who He is, but because of also what He does. It's not wrong for us to look at the gospel and want to respond positively because of the gospel. It's not wrong to to worship in response to what God has done. I mean, because if you think about it, in the gospel, we see the clearest picture of who God is in his fullness. He is a holy, righteous judge. And those that deny him and reject him and and, and don't respond to him will certainly be condemned. 
but he's also the loving provider of grace and mercy that enables us himself to stand in his own presence. And in the biggest way, I mean, he saves us from himself. What other response is there to this work of God in the gospel than worship? Uh, What other response is there to be this attitude that we come to that it's not just about what happens in the seats on Sunday morning, but that tomorrow matters in how I approach the people I work with or the the neighborhood that I live in or the people that I'm going to see this afternoon in the restaurant. It matters. What I do with my life, it matters how, how much I give myself to the things of the world as opposed to the things of God. In the gospel, we learn that this is the proper response to give ourselves to God as he's given us himself and sacrificed himself. Go back to Romans 12.1. Therefore, brothers, in response to all that I've told you, in response to all that I've taught you. Give your bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, what's this mean for the way? I mean, this is a vision sermon. It's intended to to speak directly. I, I, I intend to speak directly to the people that call this church their home. But I know that there's visitors here, and, and, and so... You can apply these principles certainly in your own life and where you go to church or, or what you do outside of church. But I broke out for you last week what it looks like as the gospel takes root in our life and the gospel rhythms that are built because we gather as a church. Or because, I'm sorry, because the gospel has, has, has changed us and then changed our personhood and changed our direction. And so I talked to you about our temple time, our table time, and our, our, our uh, town time, and, and how, how the temple is our corporate gathering. This would be our time where we gather corporately, and we sing God's praises. And we take the Lord's Supper in, in, in honor of Him, in remembrance of Him. We, we come together and we hear His Word preached and explained and exposited that we might be, be stronger, that we might know Him better, that we might walk more rightly, that we might respond to Him better, that we might, might, might hear the Gospel and be encouraged. All of these things. But this time, it's easy to understand this time is not for you and for me. Certainly we're going to be blessed in it. Certainly we're going to be grown in it. Certainly we're going to receive benefit in it because the worship of God is only part of the equation. God wants to do this in His people. He longs to do this in His people. But when you come here, this time is not first and foremost about you. It is about Him. So we're going we're gonna to strive to teach. We're going to strive to encourage an attitude of worship in all that happens here on Sunday mornings. But even in our table groups, you know, our community groups, we're, we're, we're not going to we're not gonna shed this idea of worship. The reason community groups exist is for the glory of God, for Him to be worshipped. It doesn't exist first and foremost so that you can have relationships with other believers. Certainly we want that. It doesn't exist first and foremost so that you can learn the Bible. Certainly we want that. 
Everything, everything falls on this. Everything we do in our community groups will be about the glory of God. And in our town, the city we live, the ways that we scatter, the ways that we, the, the places we go when we're not together, that we're not working in, in, in a way to reach the city, the things that we're going to do, certainly we want to see people respond to the gospel. Certainly we want to, to have opportunity to share the gospel. Certainly we want to see people's lives made better as we do acts of mercy in our city. Certainly we want to see these things. But more importantly, this attitude of worship has to be what, what motivates it, what, what leads it. Everything we are, everything we are as a church needs to be about this first. Because of the gospel, we are. We, we are. We're, we're different than we used to be. We've been given a new direction. And that direction starts with the worship of the God who deserves our worship. Everything else falls in line behind that. And if we can get this part right, if we can get this right, and we can set aside all of the idols of our life, and then we can continue to do battle with the idols that rise up behind that. Remember, John Calvin said our, heart factor, our idols are heart factors. If we can continue to do battle with the gospel for all the idols that come up behind them, I have no doubt we will be the church that God has intended us to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word, for the Gospel message, for the work that You've done in it, through it. I thank you, God, that you didn't just give us a job to do, but that you designed us for the, to be the people you've expected us to be. God, you are, you're good and you're gracious and you're holy and you're righteous. And you accept us in spite of who we are and in spite of the fact that we were people who denied you, who worshipped other things, who, who continue to struggle with worshipping other things. God, you have set us right. We are thankful for that. God, I pray that, that you would, in the lives of every person here, set yourself high to be exalted, to be praised and honored and adored, to be served with honor. God, I pray that for, for our church that this would be the, the, that this would be the trait that defines us. That as you've done your work in us, that we respond well and that we set aside our idols and that we set aside those things that, that, that distract us and that, and that give us some sense of temporary satisfaction or joy. God, that you would, that you would be preeminent in our lives. Spirit, I pray that you now would give us conviction of those things that we raise up, that we look to, that we could repent, that we could apply the gospel, and we could stand in your presence, worshiping you and you alone. But Father, I pray that in this time that you will be honored. 
It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.